Welcome back to the R Squared Podcast. I'm your host, Ian Levy. Today's guest is Nate Duncan, host of the Dunked On Podcast and a regular contributor to The Cauldron at Sports Illustrated and to Nylon Calculus. Nate's a salary cap savant, so we have him on to talk about the league's current financial climate and some of the interesting salary cap storylines going on right now. We also get Nate's thoughts on the Golden State Warriors, the Indiana Pacers, and the Chicago Bulls. All right, Nate. So we're here to talk about uh, a whole bunch of stuff, but uh, you you are a, a salary cap expert among uh, among many other things. Um, and you joined Nylon Calculus as a contributor uh, just before the season started, bringing your cap expertise into the fold. So I think we'll start there. Um, what uh, what intrigues you um, about the salary cap and the the financial side of the league? Well, it's something that I always felt fit into my skill set that existed as a lawyer pretty well. I think just the fact that there's a salary cap that, although you can exceed it in certain ways, it's close to a zero-sum game when you're trying to build a team and having to decide on how to allocate your resources, those negotiations, the fact that there's a maximum salary, the fact that there are kind of ways to game the system, whether it's rookie contracts, whether it's getting superstars on max contracts, uh, restricted free agency. If you are a team to try to get more production out of your dollars, just that constant battle is something that I've always found fascinating. So, so from that team building aspect, so, um, how do you i mean the 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 c b a is an enormous document, and there are you know tons and tons of nuances and we even you know like hear stories about Vladi Divok and other g m s don't like dealing with him because he doesn't understand all the nuances of the salary cap, so given how complicated it is, how do you get to a place where you feel comfortable with all the sorts of ins and outs and and inner workings? Well, a lot of it was helped just you know I probably got maybe. 20% of the way there just by reading smart people over, you know, a 10 year period, really once basketball coverage started getting onto the internet and, you know, I just would spend an hour and a half, two hours reading the best stuff that I could every day. And people like Larry Kuhn, obviously his CBA FAQ, and I didn't understand stuff uh, of, of how teams were able to fit certain players into the salary cap or uh, how the transactions were working. I would, go there and kind of get a, a brief idea of it. Uh, John Hollinger, Kevin Pelton, guys like that who were writing, uh, Chad Ford writing about it in the public sphere, at least got to the point where uh, Mark Stein also does a real good job among the national guys with salary cap stuff. So that was getting to the point where I had at least a base level of familiarity. But when I decided that I really wanted to try to get serious about having a career in NBA media, I figured I needed to go beyond that level. And that's when I really started getting into the document itself, but trying to put it in a way where I could understand it and study it more than just reading 500 pages of legalese. (laughs) Is your legal background like related to financial things or, or did you practice some other kind of law? No, actually when I, practice, uh, which I recently uh, semi-retired from to focus on my NBA media career, I was, there's some overlap because I was doing some negotiation and, and settlements, but I was mostly working as a plaintiff's attorney uh, doing injuries and uh, airplane crashes, uh, which uh, was uh, not particularly related to what I was doing. But what was related was just simply the training. I mean, one of the biggest things that people don't understand about lawyers is a lot of times you don't know the answer off the top of your head. You just have to look it up. And for example, studying for the bar exam, that's something where you just have to synthesize a lot of information and get it. So you just like, you just know it off the top of your head for the bar exam because you can't bring in any materials for that. And same thing with law school too. You basically have one, one exam at the end of the semester. It's probably actually not the most efficient way to learn. But that's it. That's all you get graded on is one exam at the end of the semester in most law school classes. So that allowed me to develop the skill set to just synthesize large amounts of information and try to memorize it and and apply it. And that's what I did in creating my CBA flashcards. It basically was just so that I could learn it. 
So at this point, do you feel like all of the, the, the sort of basic framework, you've got that all memorized? Like how often do you have a question or run into a, a situation or thinking about a scenario with a player where you actually have to go back and refer to the, to the CBA? Um, I wouldn't say that I have it all memorized, but it, usually if I have to, uh, there's about 500 flashcards that I made to try to memorize everything. And, and memorizing isn't necessarily important, but at the very least, I will have uh, for pretty much everything, I will know that there is an answer and that there's something there and have a general idea. And then, all right, maybe I'm 95% sure I should go back and check on the specifics. But for a lot of things, I've got it off the top of my head, but that's just due to a lot of studying. I mean, I, I created the flashcards. Uh, Danny LaRue and I would get together on the weekends and just quiz each other on them and try to make sure that we had everything right and had all the concepts right and uh, go through 20 cards at a time, try to memorize them. And then I actually recorded my own voice. I lived in San Francisco and my office was out in Walnut Creek, so I had like an hour commute each way. Uh, so I just recorded my own voice reading the flashcards, which was very annoying uh, to listen to, but, you know, in George Costanza style fashion, when he tries to listen to the book on tape, when it's his own, sounds like his own voice. But uh, so, you know, for at least half that commute every day, I would just listen to that and got to the point where I was pretty close on stuff. Like, you know, for example, if I had to look up exactly how the qualifying offer works, for someone who uh, meets the starter criteria or doesn't, you know, I'm not going to know exactly what the number is, but I can look it up in about a minute or so if I need to, to try and figure out exactly, you know, how much someone's qualifying offer is going to be when I'm doing cap projections. Um, so <laughs> the, the flashcards, are they like public? Do you like thought about like publishing them or selling them? It seems like that's something, well, I mean, given how popular Larry Coons, uh, you know, CBA, um, frequently asked questions are, it seems like that's something that, that people would really be interested in. Well, I tried to follow his model in just making it public essentially for free. I thought it was something that also, I mean, it wasn't entirely, uh, altruistic. I thought that it would be something that would be good for my reputation. And so I just have it on my old site before I started writing for uh, more widely read sites, uh, the team rebound. I have them there and you can use actually an app to download them to your phone uh, and just basically have the flashcards on your phone. So that's uh, it's, it's in my, in my Twitter bio. Uh, you could, you could search me. I'm sure you'd find it pretty easily if that's something that you're interested to try and learn that stuff a little bit better. Um, but I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty dry. It's not for the faint of heart, I guess. <laughs> yeah. well, that's great though. I'll definitely drop that in the, in the show notes. Um, so, so for somebody who is a basketball fan and they're interested in the CBA and, um, and, and, you know, well, maybe I should back up. It, it's funny cause it seems like this financial side is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the mainstream conversation where 10 years ago, people were arguing about who was good and who was bad. Now they're arguing about who's good for X number of dollars. And um, I suppose as you, as you um, all this, the sort of like rumor mongering and, and trade talk and free agency, you know, uh, uh, happenings and all of that stuff as that has become sort of like a bigger and bigger part of, of, of what makes the, the basketball season attractive to people, it, it's sort of necessary to to bring some of that financial stuff in, right? Would you say? Yeah, I think so. I, I do feel, this is a, an aside, but in our kind of NBA media bubble, we may overstate the interest level of the casual fans at times, but my hope is that through my podcast and through some of the writing that I do, that for people who do have more of an interest on in how this stuff works to explain it in a way that's at least somewhat accessible. I think you're never going to get there all the way because it's just a complex topic. But yeah, I think it is really interesting for a lot of people. And part of the reason for that, I think, is this new CBA. First of all, it was simply, hey, what are these guys fighting about? Why don't we have basketball back in 2011? And I didn't really get into it until after that lockout. I think then there, uh, once you had the new agreement, there are a lot of aspects of it that made sort of CBA analysis more important, uh, such as shorter contracts. Also, I think another thing that really 
drove the interest was that summer of 2010 when you had so many players as free agents and then, oh, how did the Miami Heat manage to get all three of these guys who are unbelievable? Like, isn't there a salary cap? This is unfair. Like, what's going on? How did they do this? Uh, those sorts of questions. And now with shorter contracts, you just have free agency being more of a big deal every summer. The cap is going up as well, so more teams are going to be involved in free agency. I think there have just been more and more interesting aspects to the CBA analysis as far as actually determining for even casual fans how good their team is going to be on the court. So so for a fan who's interested in the CBA and wants to know more, let's say three, what are like three sort of like big concepts that would be important to sort of understand about about uh, about how the salary cap works and, and how it fits into team construction? Uh, this will be a good one off the top of my head. Let's see what I can come up with here. Uh, well, the first one would be obviously that there is a salary cap, and but it's a soft cap. And there are basically 11 exceptions when you can exceed the salary cap, those will go from, for example, when you're re-signing your own free agents, depending on how long their contract was, how long they're on the team, you're allowed to exceed the cap uh, as much as you would like to up to their maximum salary. If you're signing someone to a rookie contract, you're allowed to exceed the cap. Minimum contract, you're allowed to exceed the cap. There are various exceptions for mid-level, room exception, et cetera, where you can exceed the cap. So simply just being constrained by the cap. It's not like football where the, the cap or hockey where the cap is just, you know, immutable and you cannot exceed it under any circumstance. There's only really one circumstance in which you have a hard cap in basketball. So that's one thing to consider is just that there, are, there is a cap, but there are also a lot of ways to exceed it. I think maybe the next thing that's important to know is that there is a maximum salary. So, Essentially, under almost all circumstances, the most you're ever going to be paying to one player is 35% of the salary cap, and you can only get that if a guy has 10 years or more of experience. You're, for a guy who's a young guy coming off his rookie contract, generally it'll be 25% of the salary cap, maybe 30 in a few situations. So that's another thing. All right, so what's that? That's two. How did I do on those two? And this is just, those are just to get you to talk, so... I can think of the third one. <laughs> no, no, those are great. Um, I, it's, it's, uh, I, I think the, the salary cap, uh, the idea of a salary cap, that's not actually a hard cap is so sort of fundamentally counterintuitive to people. Yeah. And maybe at least just for this, uh, you know, next couple of years, the important thing to remember too, is that, the salary cap is going to be going up so much because of this new TV money. It's the current projection is 89 million next year, over 70 million this year, which means that at least half the teams in the league are going to have maximum salary space. That's a big departure from, you know, really before this new CBA in 2011, back then you would only have maybe two, three, four teams that would have maximum salary space. And there are a lot of reasons for that as well, other than just the cap going up. But, that's something that's really important to remember now is essentially an average player in free agency, an average starter. You know, think of maybe someone like Nick Batum is a guy who's going to be a starter, uh, who's going to be a decent guy, but not a superstar by any means. That type of player is going to be getting $15 million a year now. And so that's when you're trying to recalibrate, when you hear about all these new salaries that there are going to be, I think that's a good rule of thumb. And in talking to people around the league, I think – most of them seem to be operating under that same assumption. Uh, and, you know, the maximum salary even for younger players now is going to be $21 million. If you have 10 years' experience, it's going to be $29 million. So just to kind of recalibrate those numbers relatively when you hear, oh, this guy signed for $15 million. All right, yeah, if this guy signed for $15 million and he's going to be your ninth man, yeah, you probably overpaid. Uh, but, you know, if he signed for $15 million and he's going to be a – good starter for your team you probably you know that's the going rate at this point and so we've already we've already talked uh or, or there has been a fair bit of discussion about how this new cap is is sort of changing the, the financial climate so you had some deals this summer that um that looked maybe inflated uh 
based on the dynamics of the old salary cap. But if you put those contract amounts into the, the framework of what the salary cap is going to be over the next couple of years, or if you think of them as a percentage of the salary cap instead of a, just a raw dollar amount, then they don't, they don't look so bad. Um, so what are some other ways that, that this enormous jump in the cap is going to change um, is going to change the dynamic of the league, how players are paid. Um, and, and then I, I don't know if you have thoughts like on um, if, if this sort of leaves opening for, for different strategies for team building, you know, I imagine if, if everybody has cap space, then the advantage of having cap space is not as much as it used to be. Yeah, I, I think that that's correct. And, the first thing that comes to mind there is that some teams are kind of getting burned a little bit by this, right? Like take, for example, the Lakers, they are positioned this year to only, they've got some pretty decent young players. Uh, if Kobe Bryant retires or they bring him back for less, I mean, they could have as much as 60 million in room, even if the cap didn't go up, they could be at like 40 million in room. Right. But now because most teams have cap room and good teams are going to have cap room, whether it's the heat, the bulls, the wizards, uh, you know, even the warriors, if they really wanted to could get to some cap room, although they'd have to sacrifice a lot of players to do that. I don't expect them to, uh, they'll probably try and hit in 2017, but nonetheless, if you are one of these teams that's in a big market, but, and has cap space that used to be a huge lure, right? Now, though, everybody else has cap space, and if you're not also good as well, then you're kind of in trouble. So that's uh, that's one way to look at it is that you know, being good is something that seems to be really important to free agents. Who would have thought, right, because you know the stereotype is that everyone just wants money and blah, blah. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing is just that a lot of teams are just, going to have this money and nobody good to spend it on, uh, especially because this is a relatively weak free agent class coming up compared to what we've seen in the past. So, uh, And also, not only are they going to have nothing to spend it on in the sense that you can't get free agents, but that te less teams, you would think, are going to be looking to clear bad salary and with the cap going up, bad contracts, and also with Kobe Bryant and Joe Johnson, some of the older contracts expiring and and teams kind of getting smarter there's not really nearly as much bad salary around the league anymore and so those teams what do you do with your money at that point do you just crazy overpay for someone that you know is not going to be worth it i think a lot of teams will do that some of them might just chill out and kind of see what happens especially if you're not a great team that's not on a timeline of being able to compete at the highest levels anytime soon. Maybe you just wait and, you know, you just pay your players up to 90% of the salary cap uh, if you need to, uh, ultimately, because uh, that's what the minimum salary is. So I kind of rambled on there for a while, but those are some of the strategies and, and some of the things that I expect to see going forward in this new cap environment. So, and, and then that last thing at the end, you're talking about the salary floor, right? Cause there's, exactly, a, there's yeah. a cap and there's a minimum teams have to spend a certain percentage of the salary cap. Yeah. But um, have to is a little bit of a, of a misnomer because if you don't get there, the only thing that happens is you just have to pay that amount to your existing players, but you know, it just gets distributed to them and up to what you would have paid with other players. So it's not like there's some draconian penalty for not doing it you just end up paying it to your players and also another thing that you can do a lot of teams have done this the Sixers in particular is you just wait till the trade deadline then take on players to get above the minimum salary because you know it's calculated as of the last day of the regular season but you don't actually have to start paying those players until you're they're on your roster so you can get above the minimum salary let's say you know you take on 10 million dollars to get above the minimum salary but if you get the guy at the trade deadline, you're only paying him three of those $10 million. So you can actually save real cash as an organization by doing that as well. And it's funny because I heard – I can't remember where I read this or what the context was, but I feel like somebody was talking about this specifically related to the Sixers in that that was a way to maybe earn some goodwill among your players by uh, by not – 
you know, not going out and getting a, a $10 million player at the trade deadline to avoid the, the salary floor and, and then reallocating that $10 million to the to the players already on your team, that that was sort of, you know, if you're going to spend the money anyway, that's <laughs> that's a, uh, and the $10 million guy is, you know, some, some veteran that you're just getting for the, for the contract amount, then, um, you know, you might as well sort of make your, make your guys happy by, by just splitting it between them. Yeah. Although generally, if you have so few guys on your team and so few established players making a lot of money uh, that you are that far below the salary floor, you probably are in such a position of power over them, either because they're on rookie contracts or because they are, and that actually would be interesting to see. I, I don't know what would happen because rookie contracts supposedly have a maximum that you can't exceed. So it'd be interesting to see whether you're allowed to do that. Uh, for those players as because the NBA is very, the whole reason for the rookie contract is because rookies are making so much and there are all these mechanisms to prevent you from paying rookies more than their rookie contract amount early. I, I would be interested to see how the league would rule on that. But anyway, that's a digression. But what I was saying was you, you have guys who are so unestablished anyway, that like goodwill towards them almost like doesn't really matter. <laughs> that much uh yeah maybe don't but, need to sell tj mcconnell on, on staying in philadelphia right exactly uh so yeah it might be something but compared to the organizational health i mean you'd i think whatever that goodwill is it's obviously too nebulous to measure but you'd probably rather just get a even a bad draft pick in exchange for taking on some unwanted salary uh as opposed to um you know doing uh uh just paying your players more and and that's why we haven't seen a team end up that far below the salary floor i think denver was like a couple million below it last year that's the only one that i can recall that's actually had that happen so far so with all the increasing complexity in the cap do you feel like uh from an organizational standpoint good cap management is it is there are there more places there to take advantage than maybe there used to be five six seven eight years ago um or is it that teams need to be more invested in managing the cap just to sort of keep up yeah i think it's the latter i will say that nba gms overall if you compare to where the league was 10 years ago 15 years ago there are so many less bad gms than there used to be you know, you would see guys signed to the full mid-level contract. I mean, it, it, back in the day, it used to be pretty much anyone who was signed to a free agent contract ended up being a bad contract unless it was a, a true max guy, you know, and and teams would get fleeced all the time. But, you, you know, you really giving up draft picks for relatively middling players. But you just, other than one perhaps exception, <laughs> uh, you, you don't really see teams just giving up draft picks unprotected into the future you know you don't see these type of fleecings on trades as you did five or ten years ago so i, I do think you, a lot of it is just kind of keeping up you know most teams have someone who specializes in just doing the cap they just have more people in the organization more really smart people in the organization i think that a lot of the owners too now are people who come from business backgrounds where they're more data oriented they're really looking for smart people they respect that as sort of kind of having uh older people who you know have been in, in the league for a while and just kind of doing things the way things have always been done and we're going to hire people who have very traditional ideas so i i think overall it's just yeah the competition is much tougher if you are a gm and in management and ownership now than it ever has been so it's interesting because thinking about, um, you know, Seth, uh, I don't know, put a little editor disclaimer or whatever on your first post, I believe, when you came on about this, um, that, that salary cap and cap management is analytics, um, although it, maybe people might not think of it that way intuitively. Um, and I was just going to say, I think it's funny because the, the people, conversations that I've had with people who work for teams um, in team analytic departments, it sounds like most of most of the people I've talked to, it sounds like the majority of their job is player evaluation with regards to the cap. So whether it's draft picks or free agents or trade possibilities, that that the analytic work 
at the team level is often much more closely tied to the salary cap and and exists on on that in that sort of area which I think is different from sort of the public work in the analytics everything is about you know um sport view and lineups and game to, you know, game, uh, uh, advantages and things like that. Um, so I think it's funny because it, it sounds like at the team level, this really is where analytics sort of, uh, is having an effect on most teams. Yeah. I, I think that, and certainly to start off, that was the case. I think with the success of people like Roland beach, for example, you know, someone like, uh, Semi Gelfand for the Warriors does a lot of that analytics stuff, uh, you know, pretty hardcore, but working more so. Uh, well, I shouldn't say more so, but extensively with with the coaching staff. So I think that's getting more prominence. But inherently, I think coaching and and game to game adjustments. I mean, it just because it's kind of short term, especially during the regular season, and just coaches kind of I think are probably less open as well in general to that sort of thinking than uh, the front office is. Uh, I think that you're right. And, you know, analytics are incredibly important because the whole point in a salary cap league, as we kind of started off talking about is you have to find guys who are going to make less money than they're really worth. And mm-hmm. that's, that's the whole point of, of all this game. And, you know, it's rookie, rookie contracts. All right. Yeah. You can do it on, on rookie contracts, you know, and that's, a big part of analytics obviously is like draft projections. You know, I mean, that's really the number one thing that you can do to succeed as a moribund franchise is uh, hit on your draft projections. And that's been a big focus of analytics and, you know, cap managers will tell you that, yeah, like that because those are cheap rookie contracts and then you have so much of an advantage with restricted free agency. And, uh, you know, and then if you get it, you can make a cheap rookie contract turn into a valuable max contract because it's artificially limited there as well. So that's the number one thing that you can do, but then you're always going to have kind of extra money. Even if you are got some guys on rookie contracts and, you know, a max guy who's worth his contract or even, uh, you know, a good value at the max, you still have extra money to allocate. And so coming up with how to do that and to do it in a way that you find people who are undervalued, is incredibly important. And that's why I think a lot of the work that's out there, both publicly and I think with teams is in terms of, all right, you know, how much money is this guy kind of worth on the open market? You you have to then have an understanding of what the market is and say, all right, you know, this guy has skills that can fit into our system. This is what our projections say. Uh, The market doesn't value these skills as much. And that's how you end up winning. If you can find, you know, a guy like a Danny green or, Developing. I mean, it all ends up going together, whether it's development, coaching, fitting him into the system. What are the markets? Is this guy undervalued? What do our projections say that this guy can do uh, in terms of both skills and just his overall ability? All of that comes into play as far as player acquisition, and that's uh, what the good teams are able to make all those things work together. So I think we sort of circled around this a little bit before, but um, when I think about analytics, I think of the idea as sort of uh, as using statistics to sort of find something creative that 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 other people aren't doing or an advantage that other people aren't seeing with regards to the salary cap. Is there room for like, is there is there room for creative uh cap management strategies or is it just sort of about doing due diligence well yeah there is there is definitely room for that and there are things that get started and kind of become trends i mean the the biggest one for example is what the spurs did last year with Kawhi leonard i i wrote a piece on and i do this every year on rookie extensions how much should this guy be making and more importantly, what is that going to do to this team's future cap structure? What is the opportunity cost? And everyone was saying, all right, Kawhi Leonard, for sure, max player. They're just going to give him the max extension, whatever he wants. Uh, Faye Compley is going to resign. It's going to get done. He's the finals MVP, uh, essential part of the um, of the Spurs machine. And so I looked at it. I'm sure they obviously had long before I did. And oh yeah, he's got this cap hold, which is basically, for those who don't know, that's basically 
when your contract ends, it is a placeholder against the cap for what your new salary is going to be. And so you have to keep, if you keep someone's cap hold on, then you are allowed to exceed the cap to resign. And that's a very uh, 10,000 foot view way of explaining it. There are a lot of nuances to that, but essentially his cap hold was only going to be 7.2 million. And so if they just kept that on the books, waited to sign a bunch of other people, he only would count for 7.2 million instead of the 16 million he would eventually sign for. You're essentially getting 9 million in extra room. And so, it made sense then that they weren't going to re-sign him. And now this year you see a bunch of teams employing that same strategy. Andre Drummond, Bradley Beal, those guys are not re-signing and, uh, or, or I'm sorry, not extending as rookies. And so now those teams are going to have a lot more space. I mean, the, the Wizards will have about 7 million more. The Pistons are going to have about 12.8 million more next summer because now they are waiting to extend those guys and they can bring in free agents before they resign them. So that's sort of one of the things that is out there. You know, another one that comes to mind was how uh, Daryl Morey signed uh, Jeremy Lin and Omer Ashik to uh, kind of what people called poison pill contracts because they were uh, eligible for special contracts because they were restricted free agents with two years of experience. They were able to, there was a quirk in the rules that would give them this balloon salary in the third year of, of a max contract after it's artificially limited for the first two years. And that made it unpalatable for their existing teams to match. So there definitely are always little things like that. You know, I, I'm not sure that it's at the point where there are totally new strategies, especially after four years of the CBA now that people are, are going to be coming up with, but it's just a question of having all of those ideas at your fingertips when you're having discussions having an understanding of what any potential course of action and the good teams, you know, that they have probably 40, 50 different scenarios mapped out ahead of time when they go into an off season or they're in negotiations with a specific player. Um, so going back to the, the Leonard situation and, and with, with Beal and Drummond this year, and this will maybe reveal some naivete on my part, but doesn't that involve, um, doesn't that involve a, like an under the table agreement on the part of Leonard that he's going to re-sign with them? Well, or or in the case can, of Beal or Drummond, it can. Uh, and no, I mean, I now, know theoretically they could say like, you know, we don't have an agreement in place. We'd really like you to come back, but we're, you know, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, and and, um, and I mean to kind of set the stage for your question a little bit. The reason that that matters is. Any contract agreements must be reported to the NBA as soon as they are agreed upon. And obviously, you cannot just agree that in a year we're going to sign you to a contract, right? That's just that's illegal under the CBA. And but you know there is this kind of nebulous idea of, and, and who knows when you're privy to those discussions what the agreement is. You know, it could be, hey, we'd really really like you to sign you to a max contractor, you know, you don't know exactly how far it goes, but obviously the league has, has investigated. And as long as there isn't a hard agreement in these cases, it seems like they're not going to come down on it. And I, I do think that generally teams want uh, players to, or, or the league wants players to be retained by teams when they're good. Also in the case of Beal, it sounds like they do not, you know, Drummond, he seems like he was kind of on board with the plan. Leonard at the time, they even were very careful to report, you know, his, his agent to say that, you know, he was going to test free agency. There was even a, a Woj article about that. But the fact remains, even if you don't have that agreement, uh, number one, you can if you make a max contract offer to the guy when restricted free agency starts for five years, that's one more year than he could be getting uh, if he goes out on the open market with larger raises. So that's one thing to consider. Uh, and the other thing to consider is just if he does go on the open market, they have the right to match anyway. So, you know, there's not really much fear that they're going to lose Bradley Beal, especially when you consider you can't officially sign players to a restricted free agent offer sheet until the moratorium ends. That doesn't end until July 12th next year. So any other business, you're going to have an oral agreement in place by then anyway to bring in the other free agent. So, 
because of the restricted free agency system, it doesn't really matter whether you have that agreement or not, other than just kind of alienating the player, but you're ultimately going to be able to keep him, and he'll probably be plenty happy to come back if you eventually max him out and you've got uh, and you've got more good players coming in to join him. So, so the, I think you uh, and a few other people had talked about that Beal and Drummond situation and sort of saw it coming um, with the the recent extension deadline that just passed. What were some other um, extension uh, some extension deals or players who did not get deals that were surprising to you? I know there were, it seemed like there was only a handful of extensions handed out, and, and quite a few players did not get extensions. Well, actually, I had Bobby Marks on my podcast last week to talk about it. I think we had seven extensions, I want to say, off the top of my head, and that's actually pretty average for what we've had. Uh, now, there are definitely some effective players, and I think maybe people would have thought there would be, you know, the, it cuts two ways, but some people would have thought there'd be more extensions because there's more space out there. But one reason I think we saw a lot of people not extend is because, one from the team side, you want to take advantage of these low cap holds, right? And if since every team pretty much is going to have cap space, or at least maybe want to get to having cap space, having that low cap hold on the book for a first round pick is much better than having an extension. I mean, you can get five million, ten million extra, ten million dollars of extra room by waiting until then. From the player side, so there's an opportunity cost to the team to sign the guy to the extension. Now you're giving up some cap space in the summer of 2016. So from a team perspective, I'm saying, all right, the only way I'm going to sign you to an extension is if you're willing to sign for way below market value to where it's worth it for me to give up some of that cap room next summer in exchange for having you on kind of a below market salary for the next four years. And players aren't going to want to do that because they're saying, all right, there's so much money around the league. Restricted free agency is not the limiting factor that it's usually going to be. There's going to be so many teams that still have money when the music stops with the unrestricted free agents that, you know, if I'm Harrison Barnes, I feel like I can get a $20 million a year deal or something like that. Uh, So those factors are all reasons why I think we didn't see as many extensions and the ones who did extend who were real good players were either sort of shots in the dark with like Terrence Ross or Jeremy Lamb, where we just felt like, Hey, we're a team that may not be in the free agency process. And so especially Charlotte. So we might as well lock up this guy who we think can be good now. And you know, if it doesn't work out, we're only paying him 7 million a year. That's going to be 7% of the cap in a couple of years or guys like Valanchunas or MKG who were willing to kind of sign for a little bit of a discount, uh, both because they wanted the security, which worked out great for MKG because he got injured, or because they were willing to get a player option to get back on the market earlier than they might have. So I think that's why we didn't see as many extensions as you might have, I wouldn't say normally, but expected given the fact that there are some good players who didn't extend. Um, so two questions. First, do you think that cap hold is something that the cap hold sort of loophole uh, that that this first took advantage of with Leonard? Do you think that's something that would be negotiated out of the next CBA? Do you think that's something? I suppose it. I suppose it benefits teams and doesn't negatively impact players. So I, I don't know what the. I don't know if either side would be would be itching to get it out. And then my other question was about Lamb and Ross and and which one of those guys you'd rather have on that on that deal. Um, well, I would say for your first question, will it get negotiated out? Um, you're right. I don't know that either side would be have, have a particular reason to do so. And when you say negotiating it out, well. That only it's only the case that you have a lower cap hold coming off a first round uh, rookie contract than your eventual salary if you hit right. So like it's uh, that's only the case for good players. I think teams don't want to you know that sort of that low cap hold is kind of the last payoff of getting a really good rookie contract where now you get this extra salary space before his contract ends up going up. So I mean you may maybe there'll be a reason to negotiate it out if you know people are annoyed that they're that players weren't extending but I don't think so and there are so many other 
bigger rule changes, and this system has worked fine for 20 years or so, that I don't expect that to be a focus of the negotiation. They're going to be focusing on the money aspects, the player movement aspects. I think that anything that – and I guess the other thing, too, is now that I think about it more, the players would should be against that, right? Because look at the Spurs, for example. They had cap room, and because of Danny Green having a low cap hold and Kawhi Leonard having a low cap hold, they actually used cap room and then exceeded the cap to re-sign those guys, and they're actually in the tax this year. And so as many, if you're the Players Association, you want as many teams spending as much money, as many ways for teams to exceed the cap as possible, because once that happens, then the other teams that were going to be using cap space you'd much rather have one team spending $80 million and then the other team spending up to the cap as opposed to one, one team using cap room spending up to the cap and then the other team still has to spend up to the cap either way. So you would rather have more money concentrated on one team because you do have the minimum salary and you do have teams generally spending up to the cap uh, even if there is more money concentrated on one team, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, and, and sorry, uh, what was your second question? Oh, Lamb versus Ross. Lamb and Ross. Yeah, so I think Lamb has played a lot better than Ross. Ross has this injury now, and he's been pretty inconsistent. I think Lamb has more defensive potential than Ross does. Lamb's also a better fit in Charlotte in because Ross is a tough fit next to DeMar DeRozan, who may leave. I think that's part of the reason he got extended is because DeRozan may leave. Uh Ross can't really defend threes, and uh, so defensively he doesn't fit that well next to DeRozan. They're both basically pure twos in terms of who they can defend, um, and obviously neither of them really can play can play a point guard either. And yeah, I think just with what Lamb has done in these first few games in Charlotte, you know, other than that fifty-one point game, I don't know that Ross even has had a stretch as good as what Lamb has done over these first like seven or eight games. In Charlotte, and he's also making a lot less than Lamb. He's making, uh, or, or I'm sorry, he's making a lot less than Ross. He's making seven million. Ross is going to be making eleven starting next summer. So I think I like the Lamb contract a little bit better than Ross. You know, once you get up to uh, eight figures, then you're kind of start talking about a guy who, at the very least, should be playing a really big role for you off the bench. And I don't know that Ross has proven that he can do that yet. Whereas Lamb, it's sort of more the money is like, all right, let's take a flyer on this guy. <laughs> so we spent like I don't know forty minutes now here, sort of pigeonholing you as a as a salary cap expert. But I don't want to sell you short because you're also one of the best sort of X's and O's guys um, around, and you do a great job uh, breaking down games. So I want to talk, uh, move and talk about some specific players and teams and stuff like that. Um, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on Derek Rose, and he um, has not really looked any better than he did last year. Um, and the Bulls sort of look a little bit disjointed with him in there. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on whether he's sort of salvageable. Obviously he's not, doesn't look like he's ever getting back to MVP level, but is, is he salvageable as a useless part for the Bulls uh, or as a usable part for somebody else? Um, and, and if Chicago decides they're going to part ways with him, what kind of options do they have? Well, so let's start with the first part of your question. And, Rose, he still has the ability to kind of get to the rim. Uh, and his problem is he doesn't have the same change of direction that he did uh, back in the day where he could kind of jump around defenders, come to a jump stop. And uh, so he's not he's not uh, able to shake guys quite as easily, but he still has the speed in a straight line uh, and still not quite as good as it was. But, you know, he's still well above average for an NBA player going in a straight line. So that's one of his problems. The other one of his problems is that he cannot explode over guys and finish with the creativity that he once did. You know, he struggles to finish right at the basket in ways that he didn't uh, before the injury. So, and, and he hasn't been able to compensate for that with, uh, you know, a, a similar adding of skills. You know, I think he's actually probably is a little bit worse of a three-point shooter than he was before the injury, and, and I think part of that is just he doesn't have as much explosion. He really was a guy who relied on getting a lot of lift on his jump shot. Same thing with his mid-ranger as well. Um, so, you know, he's not the player that he was. I think he still has the skills to be a slightly above-average point guard. That may require an adjustment in his game 
to where he's going to pick his spots a little bit more, you know, try to not drive into traffic as much, try to slow the game down a little bit and use his size more than he has. But, you know, it's really going to take an adjustment for him. And I think, unfortunately, due to just the fact that he won the MVP at, at such a young age and, you know, maybe some of the people around him that he still views himself as a player who's kind of in that superstar category. And you know, that's no longer realistic, unfortunately. So I think if he can recalibrate his game, he can still be effective. And, you know, as much as people malign him, the Bulls were still terrible whenever he was off the floor in the playoffs last year, you know, so, and part of that's due to the fact that their backups didn't perform particularly well. But I, I mean, I, th- yeah. I think he can still be an effective player, if not all-star level. He's just going to have to kind of chill out uh, just a little bit on the usage and, and maybe focus on finding guys a little bit more, which is not, he's not, you know, I think he's probably just kind of average at that, you know, he'll throw some nice passes, jump passes on the weak side, but, you know, it's it's rare that you'll see, all oh, this guy threw an unbelievable pass. And so I think he just has to focus a little bit more on those aspects of his game and not, uh, you know, running so much of the offense through him anymore. So do you think he – do you think those making those adjustments is realistic in Chicago? Or is that the kind of thing where it's like he needs the kick in the ass of, of getting traded somewhere? I don't know. I really don't. I think a lot of it's mentality. A lot of it depends on what other options the Bulls have to score. I mean, they have not had an efficient offense so far this year. They do have players like Miritich, Butler, Gasol, who also are, are good offensive players. But, you know, and I don't know that the problem with Rose a little bit, though, is that if he doesn't have the ball in his hands and he's not making three-pointers, he becomes a real big problem for other guys who are trying to create because you can help off him a lot. And that's something that uh, the Timberwolves were doing uh, pretty extensively in the game where the Bulls had about four points in the last 12 minutes of the game, including overtime, and and ended up losing to the Wolves. Uh, So, yeah, I I think that that is a little bit of a problem. And if it gets to the point where he's going to start getting ignored, then you kind of have to put the ball in his hands because it's going to gum things up for everyone else. But if he's not going to be efficient, it is a little bit of a conundrum. But with the amount of money that he's making, frankly, uh, and, you know, it's not like there are some amazing other point guards who are going to become available. Um, you know, I think they just kind of continue to ride this out for the next couple of seasons. Uh, you know, you did mention that what they could do uh, stretching his salary. I think you mentioned that in an email beforehand. And that's something that I hadn't really considered that much. Uh, but maybe they could. The way the stretch provision works is you get to – uh, wave a player, and then you can stretch his salary over uh, double the n- number of years remaining on his contract plus one. You can only do that before September 1st of a season. So if they were to wave and stretch him now, they'd be on the hook for his whole salary this year, and they still need him this year. But next summer, he's making, you know, I think $22 million or so. If they wanted to get into the cap room game, they could stretch his salary, you know, about $7 million over three years and get an extra $13 million in room. The only problem is there aren't really any point guards available on the open market next year. So, And, and there's still some bad optics involved with doing that as well. So I, I wouldn't expect that, but it is an intriguing potential option. Um, so you cover the Warriors, um, and they are uh, en fuego right now, specifically Stephen Curry. What's it like been watching them uh, just just tear everybody apart this year? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable that, you know, I've only been credentialed media and this is now my third year and that last year was really, you know, I I was convinced that last year was the best team I would ever cover in my lifetime and they appear to be uh, even better this year. Um, So are they really better this year or is it just that Curry is just can't miss? No, I mean, he's, he's come back to earth the last four or five games. The defense is still awesome. I mean, they have a you know, that, that's that been one of the biggest things, obviously, that, I mean, I don't want to say no one talks about because I think the smart people understand it, but in the, in the, with Curry's sort of incandescence to start the year, that was really only lasted for like four or five games or so. I mean, he still has been awesome, uh, but, you know, I don't think he's been that much better than last year, these last uh, three, four games, but the defense has been great. I mean, they held Memphis to 84 points on like 101 possessions yesterday. They held them to 69 in another game, I mean, they're holding teams 
in like the eighties and and nineties when they're playing like a hundred possessions a game. It's it's remarkable, and that's even when Curry doesn't have a good day, and you know Clay Thompson hasn't had uh, the start kind of start that he had last year. I mean, but when you consider ultimately, I think they were like plus their net rating was like uh, plus nine last year through this time, and now it's like plus. 16 plus 17 so yeah I mean it's you wouldn't expect that a 67 win team would improve just because you know outliers like that usually tend to regress in some fashion but they and I do expect them to regress at some point during the year even if it's just because of injury because they're very healthy last year but so far yeah they have been better I mean it's pretty it's pretty hard to say otherwise yeah, they're, I just looked it up on Basketball Reference. Their SRS right now is 14. Um, that's SRS's net rating with strength of schedule wrapped in. So their uh, their SRS is 14, which is uh, uh, three points higher than any other team in history um, and four points higher than last year. They were at 10.01. So, uh, yeah, an absurdly hot start. Um any reason to think that they couldn't challenge uh, for 70 wins or even 73 wins? Uh, yeah, because that's incredibly hard. <laughs> that, would, that would be a reason, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and there's certainly reasons against it. I probably phrased yeah, that badly. Yeah, but, I, um, I mean, that, that's in play, right? Uh, Maybe well, not I probable, think, you know, but if it's... They, if they can stay healthy, and I mean, the important thing, you know, they've already banked nine wins now, right? So, you know, if, if you've banked nine wins, then, you know, I, I don't have the math in front of me, but, you know, what pace would they need to go on now to to get there? I mean, looking at them, maybe, you know, only losing 12 games over the rest of the year now over mm-hmm. 70 games instead of 80 games. Uh, now, maybe that becomes a little bit more realistic just because of what they've already done. And then, you know, what they've already done has some predictive value as well. I still think that yeah, if they can stay as healthy as they did last year, yeah, maybe it's possible. I don't know. I, I I keep thinking that this team just can't keep it up, and obviously, you know, not to the point where I didn't think they were the favorite last year or anything, but, man, they sure, they sure look good. I, I wouldn't put it past them, although, I still, you know, the odds are obviously against it, but, you know, in some of the simulations that I've seen, uh, you know, 3% chance or 4% chance or something like that of, getting the 72 wins, I think that actually is not unrealistic given what they did last year, given the fact that most of their players could be expected to improve this year. It's their second year in this system under this coaching staff um, and how they've started the year. All of that would lend you to believe that there is a chance, although I still would think it is pretty small. Okay. So being around the team, covering them, uh, I don't know if you would really have realistically have a sense of this, but do you think that that would be something that would be important to them? That that would be something that, that, you know, it gets late in the season that they would be focused on chasing that and, and make whatever minute management decisions based on, on chasing 73 wins as opposed to just trying to be ready for the playoffs. Well, they didn't do that much resting last year. There was really, I think only one game where they just, they were going to Denver and, some of the uh, catapult data that they had indicated that guys were kind of in the red zone where they're getting to the point where they might suffer some fatigue and, and some injury. And I still think if they get to the point where that data says guys need a rest, they're going to give it to them. But I do mm-hmm. think that with this team, the amount of rest that they give players just systematically that they're, that they plan to rest players is not as much as it's been made out to be. It's just that they're blowing people out so those guys don't need to play as much. I think in competitive games, they're fine with Curry playing 36, 37 minutes a game, and uh, you know Draymond Green maybe even a little bit more than that sometimes. And those guys are pretty young as well. I don't think that they are, are on a minutes uh, restriction kind of plan the way some of the older Spurs guys have been. But, I mean, that's what gets lost in all these rest discussions all the time is – yeah, you can rest guys when you're doing really well, when you're still winning games and guys are getting rest or guys are getting rest because you're blowing everyone out. That's a big part of it, much more so than just a systematic kind of uh, way of resting people, especially when you know, you're fighting for the playoffs, you're fighting for the eighth seed. You, know, you can't get away with that kind of stuff. And I think they'll be good enough that they can. And just from a mentality standpoint, these guys are really competitive. You know that they were upset 
by stuff that was blown out of proportion, but also was, I think there was some reality to it where they weren't the championship favorites this year. It was Cleveland, Cleveland, you know, Kyrie saying, Oh, if we'd had our full team last year, we would have won doc rivers comments, which I think were overblown, but still there's some reality to it. I mean, he was at least saying that like, he felt like the Clippers could have challenged them and, and, uh, that their path was easier for not having played the Clippers. I know the Warriors didn't feel that way. Uh, they felt like they could have handled the Clippers just fine. So with all that, I think that there will be some motivation to say that we are we are going to uh, show everyone again, yeah, you doubted us after we won 67 games and waltzed to the championship last year. Uh, well, how about this now? Um, yeah, it, they've been certainly been fun to watch. Well, I, I don't want to take up uh, any more of your time. I really appreciate you uh, joining us. We will uh, be listening to you on the Dunkdown podcast. We'll Wait, be reading so, so you. We can't talk about the Pacers. Can we talk about the Pacers for a little bit? All I right. I know you follow them. I, I want to find out what your thoughts are uh, on the Pacers for like five minutes. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Uh, I have been I have been pleasantly surprised. I was uh, I'm definitely. Uh, gloom and doom is sort of like my default. Um, and so I looked at this team this summer and I thought it was sort of going to be a disaster. I thought, um, I thought Monte Ellis was going to, uh, was going to hurt George Hill. I thought that was sort of, uh, I wrote it a few different places. I was like, George Hill, you had the best year of your career. Congratulations. Your prizes. You get to share the ball with Monte Ellis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I noted that too, especially when Ellis was really struggling early on, I thought it could be a problem. Yeah, it was a bummer. It was like, you played so well, now go back and stand in the corner again. Um, and uh, I thought, I just, with all this small ball talk, I wasn't sure how committed they would really be to it. And I thought we would see, um, I wasn't sure how much they would stick with it. And I thought we would see a lot of, like, Jordan Hill, Jan Mahinmi lineups together. Um, and they've been sort of reasonable in, in when they've used it and when they haven't. Um, and Paul George has been much better than I thought he was going to be. I mean, he's been amazing the past couple games. And uh, so, yeah, it looks a little it looks a little brighter than I thought. Yeah, I, I think the biggest worry that I had, other than what you said, I mean, I guess there were two. One was that George wasn't going to come back and be the player that he was. I think that his preseason alleviated those concerns to some extent. And I have to really dig into, I mean, like you probably know this better than I do. Like, how is he scoring? Is he scoring in a way where he's like hitting a lot of mid-rangers or something like he was at the start of 2013-14 where you might expect some regression or do you expect him to be able to kind of keep up maybe not, you know, 30 a game, but this this pace of basically being like a top 10 player offensively? It's been a good mix. He's, he's, uh, the, the mid-range jumpers that he's gotten have not been, um, have, for the most part, they've not been bad. Um, they've not been like pull-ups off the dribble. Um, or if they have, they've not been like ISO pull-ups off the dribble. They've been, you know, curling and catching the ball at the elbow or, you know, coming off screens and taking a dribble, um, you know, into a seam in the defense. So I, I think his shot selection has been good. Um, I wrote something at Fan had it earlier this week about how there are still these moments where you see him it's almost like you see this switch go off in his head where he's like, oh, I'm supposed to be a star, so I have to take a star shot now and and uh, the Pistons game there was a bunch of different possessions where they kept they kept getting uh, they kept catching Reggie Jackson on him on a switch and he would ISO or try to post up Reggie Jackson and and uh, I think the last time they did it it ended up in a layup but the first two were like a, an awful turnover uh, a terrible uh, turnaround fall away jumper um, and then there was a few other I think there was at least one other time where they just didn't get a shot out of it and so I, I still um, I still worry about that 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 there's that somewhere in him there's still sort of this mindset that he's supposed to be sort of like a certain type of offensive star. Um, and I think he's so much better. He's so good and he can score in so many different ways, but it's best when it comes in the flow of the offense, when it comes in transition and broken plays and coming off screens and, and curls and, and cuts and things like that, that, that whenever they try to sort of ISO him or, or put him in the post or, you know, they see a mismatch and they throw him the ball and tell him to go take care of it. It seems like those almost always end badly. Although his free throw rate has been really high um, this year. He has gotten bailed out on some of those that might, might not be totally sustainable. Yeah. And I guess uh, 
you know, I didn't realize they're only five and four. It seems like they should have a much better record, but I forgot that they started zero and three, and they're you now <laughs> five and one over their over their last six. Um, you know, it seems like if you just kind of look at what their overall statistical resume, it's like kind of similar to last year in more ways than you would think. I mean, they're only twenty seventh in offense. They've played some really good defenses, true, uh, <laughs> and their their pace is only twenty fourth, which you know they're they are playing small a little bit more. It seems like they when they've played kind of big teams, when they played the Cavs, when they played uh, the Grizzlies, they matched up big, and then they went with and, – and Miles has been out for a couple of games too, uh, C.J. Miles, which just kind of limits the small ball. But, yeah, I mean, do you think they've been more effective going small than they have going big? I, I would think that they had given just the fact that they have more good smalls than bigs. Yeah, I think they have, and I think the pace is somewhat depressed because they've been giving up a lot of offensive rebounds. Um, so, uh, you know, that that can skew the the pace number. Um, yeah, I guess I, it's, it's a I, more it's a better proxy for how fast you're playing to just kind of look at you know when your average shot comes in the shot clock, perhaps than uh, you know, or, or maybe even better, how many what percentage of your shots come in like the first eight to 10 seconds of the shot clock than necessarily just what your pace is. That, that makes sense. Yeah. And through the first couple of games, they had, give, they had been forcing a lot more turnovers. So they definitely were getting out and run, getting out and running. I think their um, I think their transition points per game are, are higher than they have been. I haven't looked over the past three or four games. Um, so I think they're definitely better when they're small. The spacing looks so much better. Like Ellis Hill, that small starting lineup, um, the spacing looks so much better. There's so much more room in the mid range for guys to cut through and curl and come off screens. Um, and miles Turner has been great too. I thought, uh, I, I was not wild about the draft pick. I hadn't seen much. Really? Really? You're the, you're the only person that I've heard who didn't think he was going to be good. I think like the statistical translation is liked him. I mean, who, who else did you want at that slot? Well, this is embarrassing, but I, <laughs> I really liked Kaminsky, and I thought, you know, he didn't necessarily fit with the, the small ball, up-tempo kind of thing. I don't thing, know that but that's I thought embarrassing. It, I don't think Kaminsky has, like, been bad or anything, and, and they, I mean, he was gone already as well by that point. Yeah, yeah but I I, I think uh, I would, if I had a do-over, I would advocate for Turner now, but, you know, I, so I, I didn't see a lot of Turner at Texas, and going off the scouting reports, he it was scary. It looked. Uh, the, I think the scouting reports downplayed that, or at least that I read, downplayed how mobile he was. Uh, it, particularly in the half court. That's right. Um, yeah, that, that's a great point because he really, you know, all you heard was, "Oh, this guy runs weird." You know, he's got to fix all these mobility issues, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, like you don't block that many shots uh, without having a quickness in short areas. Yeah, and and yeah, not just end to end speed. He's he's much better than I expected uh, in the half court and and getting through small spaces um, and changing directions and things like that. But you know, the scouting reports uh, were sort of like he's a rim protector who's gonna be able to shoot threes someday. Uh, and the to me that sort of sounded like well he's you know he might be Roy Hibbert with a jump shot someday and that that didn't sound all that appealing um, and I know uh, Lane Vashro who has his draft models at Nylon Calculus who I really respect and those are the ones the statistical um, draft projections that I pay the closest attention to he liked Turner uh, but his projections. Um, we're really like boom bust on Turner. So he, um, he, he has a setting, uh, where you look, he looks at the, the probability of a player being like a bust, a bench player, a starter, uh, or a star. Yeah. And, um, and Turner's probabilities were like, I don't know, it was like 40% bust and 40% star. Um, and I felt like, I felt like, you know, the, the Pacers are sort of in this weird place. They're not really that young anymore. You look at their roster and, uh, you know, everybody's kind of like 27, 28. And they're, the, you know, this is um, if they're going to get something out of this core, out of this Paul George, George Hill, you know, well, kind of core. Is George? Isn't, isn't Paul George only like 25? I got to Actually, I got it right in front of me. He is Paul George. Uh, May tw- May second, nineteen ninety. 
So yeah, 25. Right. So he'll be 26. So it felt like if they're going to do something, really, it's got to be in the next couple of years. And, and Turner just felt like risky. And uh, even the best case scenario was that he, that he was going to be a project for a couple of years. And I thought it would be better to get somebody sort of with more defined skills who could come in right away. But, you know, I mean, we saw it right off the bat at Summer League, like Turner's just a lot more ready than I thought. And, um you know, Seth released his first run of, of rim protection statistics earlier this week, and, and Turner has the highest contest percentage in the league. Um, and that matches the eye test when he's in there on defense. I mean, he's all over the place, and he's contesting every shot. And he's hasn't been terribly effective, and he's fouling quite a bit. But he's, you know, he his activity level and his uh, his instincts um, in the half court are are great at both ends. Much much better than I was expecting. Yeah, I actually, to me, because of the fact that they have George and they have this kind of mature team, uh, and, and George is only 25, I mean, I think you can expect him to be good for like the next four years. I think you say, all right, if Paul George comes back to be the player that we thought, that this is our one chance to get someone who has some pretty good upside drafting this high, we expect we're going to be you know, drafting at least in you know the late teens, from now on, this is a guy, you know, when do you find a guy with his potential that late uh, in the draft, even at 11? So I, I thought that that's actually a reason to do that pick. And, hey, I mean, if he looks awesome and you really want to win now, you could always trade him later, too. I mean, I think it's it's always just that's better true. to have, you know, the, the better player, even if he is younger necessarily. I mean, that's always like Charlotte's drafting strategy. That's always what I've disagreed with for them is uh, mm-hmm. that they just kind of – did not uh I, I guess your kid does not agree with my uh, with Charlotte's drafting <laughs> drafting strategy either. Uh, <laughs> She's a big Hornets fan. She's a, a Georgia <laughs> Uh Yeah, I mean th- that they you know sort of executed this tanking strategy and then just never actually took the high upside guys that those picks gleaned. Uh, and hmm. I mean they obviously didn't tank last year, but Kaminsky is another example of that where it's like all right, you know. This is a guy that's not. I don't think everyone, anyone, was ever saying this guy is the potential to be an NBA superstar. So yeah, I, I really like the pick. Uh, but yeah, all right. I guess. Uh, sorry, I know this isn't my podcast. I didn't mean to keep you. No, uh, no, keep, keep you too much longer. But I, I did want to talk to you about the Pacers because I know you you probably follow them, uh, you know, as closely as anyone I know. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy to. I'm always happy to talk about the Pacers. I I don't, I don't want to ram it down anybody else's throats though either. I know they're uh, they still have the the sort of the uh, the stench of the boring Hibbert West power, you know, uh, uh, terrible ISO offense days. Yeah, uh, it, it was so destructive I, actually. That you know, I did uh, season previews of, of all teams, <clears> and the listenership for my Pacers preview. Uh, was lower than anyone else's and which you know and, and Candace Buckner did a great job on that it, it wasn't you know it's, it's just that like it kind of shows just that national interest that uh, you know assuming that people who listen to my podcast is a decent proxy uh probably <laughs> the lowest among the Pacers uh, uh, of the Pacers among any team which uh hopefully now that Paul George is back that won't be the case anymore yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. But yeah, here's here's hoping a few more people start watching them because they've they've looked good. All right, we'll try this again. <laughs> Nate, thanks so much for coming on, and uh, we'll hopefully we'll have you on again uh, sometime later in the season, and we'll uh, we'll listen to you on the the Dunked On podcast, and we'll be reading you at uh, the Cauldron at, at Sports Illustrated and on Nylon Calculus. Thanks a lot. All right, my pleasure, Ian. Thanks.